Good morning. Let us open with a word of prayer. <clears throat> Almighty God, I, I, I am humbled that we have a magnificent Father, Son, and Spirit such as you, that you are the God of the universe, that you have created all things, even the most distant star that we can't even perceive, you made it, and yet you died for us. We thank you that you have made us a part of your church, that you have called us out, that we are part of your remnant. I pray that the study that we have undertaken to know your church better, to know the saints of the past better, that through that we will know the work that you have done, the work that your spirit has wrought in the world, and that we will be encouraged and we will be vigilant, and that we will go forward knowing that we carry the banner to a new generation just as another generation carried it to us. So we thank you for the study that we are concluding. We pray that this time will be edifying and that no one will stump me. In your name we pray. Amen. Okay. <clears throat> so I don't know when we started. Was it in October? Uh, so we've been studying church history since October pretty consistently. I think there was a couple weeks where we did some different things around Christmas, but... Uh, for the most part, we've been at this for, what is that, seven, October, November, December, January, February, March, April, so seven months. And here we are at the end, and so last week, Hoyt brought the history of the church up to the present day, and we thought that it would be good to just wrap things up and, and recapitulate that which we have talked about uh, thus far. So I want to just briefly review some of the history that we have discussed. And, I wanna, and then I want to dwell for a bit on a couple of main themes and then we'll open it up to questions. And we'll take all comers as long as it pertains only to the year 476. Um, <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> heading you off, Doug. So, um, okay, so some of this from the, in the notes you'll recognize from notes earlier. Uh, so I just want to briefly review the three main eras of the church and then within those some of the main points because it's been seven months since we talked about some of this stuff and so I just want to bring it full circle. So, so that being said, the three main eras of the church are the early church, which is roughly up to the fall of the Roman Empire, the medieval church, when things really go haywire, and then the modern church, which begins in the Reformation, and, and which we continue as a part of to this day. So <clears throat> there's lessons to be taken from each of these main eras of the church, and that's really what I want to kind of camp on today. So, through all of these, yes, question. Well, that's complicated. Because um, remember, when, when we typically fall 
talk about the fall of the Roman Empire, we, we generally are speaking of the western half of the Roman Empire. In the year 395, when the emperor Theodosius dies, he divides the empire between his two sons, Honorius and Arcadius, and never again will they be uh, united as one. So within 80 years of that event, the western empire will have collapsed and the final emperor is deposed in the year 476, and that's when we generally reckon the Roman Empire to have fallen, but the eastern half will persist for another thousand years and will only finally succumb in, on May 29th in 1453, 40 years before Columbus discovers the New World. So the Roman Empire fell for a long time. It fell longer than most nations exist. 476 is the year we generally will reckon as the year the, the, the Western Roman Empire fell. Uh, and even in that, it's a little more complicated, but we don't need to dwell in the weeds. Uh, so within the early church, we, we generally divide that era up into four main sections or, or time periods. And we divide these up <clears throat> largely on the basis of who the church leaders were and the nature of their writings, because that is how we know them. So we have the apostles, the apostolic fathers, the apologists, and the theologians. So obviously the apostles, well, they're the apostles. That's what we read about in the book of Acts and in the rest of the New Testament. And that is when scripture is written. They are, not all the apostles are authors of scripture, but some of the apostles are the authors of scripture. They are inspired by the Holy Spirit and the things that they, are, that they write under the inspiration of the Spirit are holy scripture. When you read in the New Testament about the scriptures though, what is that referring to? Old Testament. So the New Old Testament and the New Testament both are scriptures, but at the end of the age of the apostles, we have what's called the closing of the canon, which means that God's inspiration of new revelation is now complete. And so that marks the end of the age of the apostles. Then we get to the apostolic fathers, and they are the first generations of the church that are being led by people who are not disciples of Christ or apostles, people who did not learn from Christ himself. <clears throat> so, but we do have people in that generation who learned from those who learned from Christ. So, for example, we talked about Polycarp. Polycarp was a disciple of whom? Does anyone remember? John. So Polycarp of Smyrna studied at the feet of the disciple whom Jesus loved. How's that for a pedigree? I'd like to have him as my pastor. So Polycarp went on to a long career, career, a long ministry leading the church in Asia Minor and ultimately, in his old age, he was martyred. And we have from Polycarp 
one letter. And that letter is not scripture. But do you think there is wisdom contained in that letter? Absolutely there is. And we should read it and see what Polycarp had to say. I mean, I would like to hear from somebody who studied, who learned about Christ, who was led to Christ by John. He might have some wisdom for us. So, so the apostolic fathers, are, though, are more pastoral in nature. They are not, most of their writings are not uh, concerned with uh, the complications of theology. So they recognize the deity of Christ, but they are not explicating a doctrine of the Trinity. That's not to say that they are not Trinitarians, but that is not their concern. They are concerned with how do we maintain a church now that the apostolic generation has passed. That is their concern. But with their passing, we move into a new generation, roughly around the year 150, and that is the generation we call the apologists. And that comes from the Greek word apologia, which means a defense. So the apologists are defenders of the faith. And how are they defending it? They are writing apologies, long treatises, defending the faith against the attacks of pagan philosophers. So they are the meeting place, the, they are the tip of the spear where the church is now having to formulate arguments in its own defense and to its own uh, advancement in the face of a world, a pagan world that is challenging its validity. And so that's when we get the first really uh, sophisticated arguments in favor of the faith, in favor of the deity of Christ in favor of how salvation works, the, the entire salvific economy. So these are men like Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, and other, Tertullian and others. And remember, Tertullian was the father of Latin theology. He was the first great writer of the church to write in Latin. And it's from him that we get the term Trinity because he is trying to describe to the unbeliever the nature of God. And he is looking for ways to make the infinite knowable from Scripture, to condense Scripture into a term that can be understood. Is there a verse that says God is Trinity? No, because all of Scripture is testifying to the nature of God. All of Scripture from Genesis from the beginning of Genesis to the end of Revelation and everything in between is testifying that God is one and eternally existing as three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. You find it from Genesis. Think of the creation account. You have the Father, you have the Spirit, and you have the Word. And you see it all the way to the end of Revelation. And so Tertullian is looking for a way to say all of that which is in all of this condensed down to one term. So when he says Trinity, he knows that he wants people to know what he is referring to, which is everything. Does that make sense? So Tertullian is, is leading that sophisticated development of the church. And I don't mean sophisticated in a bad way, but they are getting 
more and more adept at articulating what the scriptures reveal. But what is the basis for all of this? But they, they keep going back to the scriptures. That is the foundation. So Tertullian isn't just making up a word because it sounds cool. He's making up a word to encompass what the scriptures reveal. And that is also the generation, as they are contending for the faith, well, they're contending for the faith in a pagan world that suddenly is going to be turned upside down. And this is when we have the great persecutions of the church, where it becomes imperial policy of the Roman Empire to persecute the Christians. And that's going to culminate in what we call the great persecution under Diocletian. And after Diocletian's regime is dismantled by Constantine, what does Constantine do? He converts to Christianity. I mean, it's a process, but in, in the year 313, he issues the Edict of Milan, which legalizes Christianity within the empire. You will often hear people say, well, Constantine made it the official religion of the empire. That's not true. Theodosius does that 70 years later. But Constantine is going to make it legal within the empire. And by nature of his association with it, do you think that that would give it a favored position? Just by the nature of his association, yes. And this is going to be a real mixed bag for the church because that is going to begin the calcification into the institutionalized church where the church is going to be co-opted into the political apparatus. And ultimately, as the Western Empire withers and fades away, that political apparatus is going to be left in the hands of the church. That's why the Catholic Church today still has administrative terminology that they adopted from the Roman Empire, such as the term diocese. We here in Mount Shasta are in the Diocese of Sacramento. So the Bishop of Sacramento is the head of the Catholic Church here in Mount Shasta. Well, the term diocese was a political term that Diocletian, the emperor, instituted when he totally reorganized the empire. So that institutional church, when the, when the, when the political power collapses, the institutional church is going to be left behind, and that's going to set the stage for the Middle Ages. But, so this is a, after the year 300, it's going to be a time of great transition for the church, but it's also going to be a time of profound theological growth, as there are more and more and more challenges to the truth that is contained within Scripture. The church is going to be forced to be more and more and more adept at articulating what the scriptures teach. So proof of that, or fruit of that, I should say, excuse me, is on the last two pages of the notes. I just included these. These have been in notes in the past, but <clears throat> I just included them again in this kind of conclusionary uh, set of notes. So the second to the last page is the Nicene Creed. The Nicene Creed was formulated at the first 
great council of the church, the first ecumenical council, which was a council of all of Christians from across the Roman Empire. And they were gathering to confront the heretical teaching of Arius, what we call Arianism, which taught that Christ was not God. That he was the first of all created things and that through whom all things were then created, but he himself was a creature of the Father and not God himself. So it's a fine line, and it's a line that goes right up to the very edge of who God is, but it crosses the line. And as I have noted before, what Arius taught in the year A.D. 300 is essentially the same as what Jehovah's Witnesses teach today. So as Solomon says, there's what? Nothing new under the sun. So the Nicene Creed was thus drafted to repudiate what Arius was teaching as well as a host of other false teachings, many of which you will find on the last page. Not all of these were around when Nicaea occurred, but many of them were for adoptionism, Arianism, obviously, Docetism, Ebionism, uh, Modalism, Monarchianism. Those are all uh, heresies that were present when Nicaea occurred. The other ones that I didn't list are going to crop up after Nicaea, and other councils are going to repudiate them. So, you know, as you look at those heresies, uh, well, a lot of them are still around today. They may, they may not use those names, but there's a lot of people in downtown Mount Shasta who would look at some of these and say, yeah, that sounds about right. You had a question? So, Arius... Uh, Arius was the fruit of Platonic philosophy. And so he's going to get there through Plato. And that's going to be one of the great struggles the church is going to have because there are some who are going to say that the Greek philosophers hit on truth, but not the complete truth. Some of the things that they discerned were were right, but they didn't get all the way there. And there are going to be others, such as Tertullian, who are going to say, "Uh uh-uh, have nothing to do with them. As he famously says, he says, what does Athens have to do with Jerusalem? Well, I think the answer is somewhere in between. So, for example, Greek philosophy, because of Pythagoras, they and I'm going way into the weeds here, so I'm sorry. Uh, they believed that numbers, Pythagoras' followers believed that numbers was the fundamental essence of the universe, and that by mathematical contemplation, you could achieve communion with the divine reality. And so they meditated by doing math, basically which seems horrible to me. But, <laughs> but some people, like Alistair, might actually like that. Um, but what did, they, 
what did they achieve? Well, they, had, they hit on a vast reservoir of profound mathematical truths. Well, how did those truths get there? Well, God put them there. God created an ordered universe, and mathematics is a reflection of the person of God. doesn't matter where you are, pi is pi. You know, it doesn't matter where you are, but, you know, two plus two is two. There could be no matter in the world, no matter, but those numbers, those mathematical truths are still there, and that is because God is a God of order, and he created those truths. And so the Greeks did hit on some things that are true. And so there's going to be this tension in the early church, like, what do we do with some of these things that they hit on? And, and some in the church are going to say, reject it all. And some are going to say, we need to engage with these things. And I think the truth really just lies somewhere in between. I mean, we have that same tension today. We're going to have that same tension here in a few minutes when we get to the Enlightenment. I mean, some of the, the fruit of the Enlightenment is good. Do we like Gregor Mendel? And him, you know, figuring out how to uh, genetically engineer plants to be more productive? Well, yeah. But the truths that led Mendel to that are created by God, but Mendel himself would reject, maybe not Mendel, but other people would reject Scripture as true revelation from God. So the Enlightenment is another mixed bag. Do we have, do we engage with that or not. I mean, we're all products of the Enlightenment, whether we want to be or not. I'm way off the weeds, though. So, I apologize. Um, okay, so it's during this era of the theologians that the church is going to have to confront these, these questions, and they're going to have to find a way to express what Scripture reveals. And I just want to harp on that for a moment because these creeds that the church is going to come up with are expressions of Scripture. They are formulations grounded in Scripture intended to express in a condensed form what Scripture reveals. So when you look at the Nicene Creed that I included there on the second to the last page, you can see that I have laid out many verses for each line of the creed to show where they are drawing these things from. And in many, many cases, I'm just giving you a little bit of what you, they are drawing from because I don't have room on that page to cite all the verses. So it's a deeply saturated statement of Scripture. And ultimately, the two creeds that we, that we still maintain that we that the church once expressed has always maintained are the Nicene Creed and the Chalcedonian Creed. It doesn't matter if you're uh, Athanasius in the mid-fourth century, if you're Anselm in the Middle Ages, if you're John Calvin in the Reformation, if you're John MacArthur today, these are all truths. They will affirm the truths as found in these creeds. So these are basic statements, essential statements of Christian faith. 
And those are going to be the fruit of this era that we know as the theologians. So we can skip down to halfway down the second page. I've said enough about the councils. Um, and also, don't forget, at the Council of Nicaea, Santa Claus is there. Uh, St. Nicholas. And he famously got up and slapped Arius for his heresy. So Santa Claus was belligerent in a good way. He was indignant at heresy. Um, okay, so that leads us to the second era of the church, the you know, large movement of the church, and that is in the Middle Ages. And that is a time of great difficulty as the old world order passed away. And remember, Augustine came at the end of the, church, of the first age of the church, and, and, and he was the great uh, paragon of Latin or Western theology. And he, he died as the Vandals, the German barbarian tribe, the Vandals, were besieging his city. They were at the gates of his city when, when he died. So he was, he was born when the Roman Empire was strong, and he died during its denouement. And so he, is in, later in life, is going to write his great book, The City of God, which is a book, in effect, targeting people who are, not people, specifically Christians, he is targeting Christians who are living through upheaval, where a world order that has existed for centuries is passing away, and what is a Christian to do as this world order disintegrates around you. Will you be a citizen of the city of man, which is passing away, or will you be a citizen of the city of God, which will never pass away? And so that, that is Augustine's proposition in that book. So, yes. Would that be totally relevant to where we are right now? That would be totally relevant to where we are right now. Yes. So, I would strongly encourage you to read it, and I put a copy of it in the church library. So, um, it's also about that thick. So, it's, it's not light reading. If, if it's on audiobook, I would strongly encourage re listening to it on audiobook. I never even thought about that. That's good. Did you listen to it? Did, did you find it good? Good. Good. Okay, so as we move into the Middle Ages then, the church is going to be uh, plagued in this new world order by an increasing institutionalization of the church where the political order has fallen away, and I mentioned this before, and so the church is left to maintain order. And that is going to become an increasingly calcified situation and <clears throat> it is going to lead to uh, a benighted church it's also going to be compounded this situation is compounded by the fact that civilization has well it collapsed and literacy is not something that is taken for granted just a very small part of the population 
is literate. And so that makes it very hard for people to encounter the Word of God. How are most people going to encounter the Word of God if they can't read? Well, they're going to hear it. And so that puts even greater pressure on those who are speaking it. Because if people cannot be like the Bereans and search the Scriptures to test whether what is said is accurate according to the Scriptures or not, that presents a problem. And so that is going to be one of the great challenges of the Middle Ages, and it is not coincidental that this situation is finally going to be, albeit only partially, rectified. What presaged the Reformation? The invention of the printing press. So the distribution of the Word of God increased, I don't know, a thousandfold? Instead of taking a year or two to produce one Bible, one printing press, one person can produce hundreds and hundreds of Bibles each year. The proliferation of books of all kinds is going to lead to a proliferation of literacy and more people encountering the Word of God without being filtered through the institutionalized, calcified church. Does that make sense? And so you're going to get to the third great age of the church, of which we are still a part, which is the Reformation. <clears throat> and that obviously was begun by Martin Luther on, December, on October 31st in 1517 in Wittenberg, Germany, when he nails his 95 theses to the door of the church. My wife grew up never celebrating Halloween, but dressed up as reformers on Reformation Day. So the pictures of her costumes are strange. Um, she would not like it if, I, if she knew I said that, so I probably should shut my mouth. Um, Thank you. Well, you can tell her. I have no secrets, but um, I'll just pay for it later. <laughs> um, that's going to, so the Reformation is going to be summed up in the clarion call of what we call the five great solas. And these are things that we should all be very, A, familiar with, but also these are things that should sound like us today, our church. I mean, these are the the statements, if you will, or if you want to say the creeds, if you will, of where our church here in Mount Shasta comes from. So initially there were three solas and with Martin Luther, and then there were two more added in. So there is sola scriptura, scripture alone, sola fide, faith alone, sola gratia, grace alone, solus Christus, Christ alone, and soli deo gloria, to the glory of God alone. And these are going to be the great statements that are going to unite the reformers. Even though they had, there were differences even amongst the reformers, There's, there is difference between a Lutheran and a Calvinist. But they are going to affirm these five great solas, and we still do to this day. And... Subsequent to that, though, as we discussed, we've discussed in the last month or so, the steam will ultimately run out of the great engine of the Reformation. 
And that will call for or present the need for revival. And that is what we see expressed in the first Great Awakening. But there were other revivals. I mean, we didn't have time to discuss the Pietist movement in Europe with the Moravians and uh, Zinzendorf. Uh, I'm getting his name mixed up, Zinzendorf. It's not that, but it's close to that. But those, you know, there were movements prior to the Puritans were another revival movement within the church uh, that's going to be part of this cyclical nature of, of revival and then lapse and then error and revival and lapse and error. What does that sound like? Yeah, it does, doesn't it? So we'll get to that at the end here. That's where we're headed. Uh, but also during this time, the, the gospel is going to go forth. As, as Christians travel throughout the world more, the gospel is going to go throughout the world more. And ultimately, it will spread throughout the world to every corner of the world, not just Judea and Samaria, so to speak, but to every corner of the earth. And we see that in a progression where first the coastal regions in India and in China and other countries are, the church is planted and then guys like Hudson Taylor are going to come along and he's going to start the China Inland Mission. And the, so the gospel is going to penetrate ever deeper in, into the hinterlands of these places. And the missionaries are not going to just pontificate the gospel which needs to be done, it needs to be preached, but they're also going to adopt local customs and cultures which had never been done before. To us, that seems normal now, but when Hudson Taylor and others first did it, it was revolutionary. And so that's another progression in how the church is approaching its mission to reach the lost, is to reach them where they're at. We also see that in what? The translation of the scriptures into their own tongues started first in Europe and then around the world until someday every tribe, tongue, and nation will bow down before God. So, and in the midst of that, then, there were still those grappling with the ideas of the world and some are going to fall prey to that as we discussed couple weeks ago about liberal theology, Schleiermacher, and his quest to, as he thought, save Christianity, he wanted to save it by adapting it and sacrificing those things that make it exactly what it truly is. He wanted to sacrifice revelation, he wanted to sacrifice the supernatural, and he wanted to maintain the form but sacrifice the essential truths of what it really is that Christ was fully God and fully man and that he died for our sins. So he was trying to save the church as he saw it, but he really killed off much of it. And that leads me to the, the final two thoughts that I wanted to share there on the fourth page. And that is this. <clears throat> what do we take away from this? Well, overarching everything 
is that there must be an adherence to Scripture. That is the thing that has remained and will remain the constant. That is, that is our final authority. As I've said before, what, what separates our church from Catholic or Orthodox churches? Well, there's a lot of things, but at the end of the day, the question really is authority. What is our authority? It's not the veneration of Mary, although that is a difference. How did they get there? They got there because they had a different authority that led them there. So our authority is and must be the authority of the church has always been and must be the Word of God. That is the only authority that does not change. So that's one thing to take from the history of the church that we've studied. The two other things beneath that, one is that we must always remain vigilant against false teachers. Scripture itself is loaded with admonitions against false prophets and false teaching. And that was true in the age of the apostles. Paul himself contended against them, just as we today contend against them. Doesn't matter if it's Mormonism, prosperity gospel, the postmodern church, they are all false teachers. They are all not submitting to the Word of God fully or at all. And the other thing I want us to remember is that God, in the midst of this, in the midst of the history of humanity from Adam and Eve to the present day, the Old Testament, the New Testament, the church age, when things are bad or when things are good, God will always preserve his remnant. Doesn't matter if it's Noah being called out of the world, if it's Abraham being called out of the world, if it's the 7,000 that God says refuse to bow the knee to Baal, doesn't matter if it's Gideon and his 300 dog drinkers, you know, lapping the water up, there is always a remnant. In the Middle Ages, when the church was calcified and corrupt, and the church leadership is something that was so corrupt that we now refer to it as the pornocracy, God preserved his remnant. We are all here in this room because in that benighted and dark age, there was a believer who maintained their grasp on Christ. They clung to him. They stayed true to his gospel. And they led others to Christ. We're all here because somebody in that dark age did that. God will always preserve his remnant. And I pray that we will all stay true to Christ, stay true to the scriptures, and that we will continue to be a part of his remnant. Because we know in Revelation, in the midst of great persecution, there even then will still be a remnant, and Christ will return. And I'll stop there. So, any questions about 
the year 476. No, I'll take all comers, whatever. Okay. Tithes? The church is living off tithes, you mean, throughout its history? Uh, no. Um, that's during... That's a complicated question. During the Middle Ages, the church was uh, a political entity. Uh, church leaders, monasteries, uh, certain sees like the the office of the bishop regardless of who occupied it they owned lands they had peasants working the land for them uh even you know beginning in the in the early middle ages with the what we call the donation of pepin uh the bishops of rome the popes even became in a sense kings of their own lands in Italy. Even post-Reformation, the Lutheran Church in Germany gets money from the, the state, the government of Germany. I mean, and that's true in other countries as well. So it's complicated. But I would say, despite that, that the remnant, the true church of God is not encumbered with those things. And that the true church does live off the, the, uh, the spiritually moved to give to the church. Yes. Oh, they fabulously rich. So, but that's not necessarily from tithing. That's what I mean. They, they owned land. They... They had state apparatuses. I mean, they had armies. I mean, they, they were kings, in effect. So that's why I say it's complicated. But I would distinguish all of that as part of the corruption that comes with the institutionalized church in the Middle Ages, and that the true church of God, the remnant, does not subsist on those things. I'm not sure if I'm answering your question, but okay. Any other questions? Yes. Yes. Sure. Okay. Before I do, I would say that this is a subject for a discipline that we call textual criticism. And I would dearly love to teach a class on this in detail. But, uh, and yes, I'm sorry. Uh, if we do not have the original text of the New Testament, and the question also applies to the Old Testament, how, if we do not have the originals, how then can we trust that it is accurate? Am I, that, so, that is, uh, 
the task of textual, first of all, before we get to that, we have faith that God's word will endure. So it says that his word will endure forever. So there is an implanted in that the idea that God will preserve his word. Regardless of what happens in the world, his world, his word, sorry, will be preserved and that it will be transmitted from generation to generation. So there is an element of faith in that regard, but in addition to that, we have a host of, it has been the task of many adventurers, Indiana Jones types, scholars, you name it, to gather together as many of the Greek, you know, for speaking of the New Testament, Greek manuscripts of the New Testament as possible. So we have over 6,500 manuscripts of the Greek New Testament. That's just of the Greek New Testament. There are also ancient Syriac, Armenian, and Latin, old Latin manuscripts as well, thousands. Within the but let's just stay on the Greek because New, New Testament was written in Greek. Within that 6,500 manuscripts of the Greek New Testament, we have many that were written within 400 years of the age of the apostles. We have, for example, what we call Codex Sinaiticus, which is a com the oldest complete Bible which was produced around the year 325. Codex Vaticanus is also in that same generation. We also have, for example, what we call P46, which is a papyrus. There's different kinds of manuscripts. Some are, are produced in scrolls, some are produced in, in what we call a codex, which is a book. In fact, the first book in the world, like constructed like this, was the Bible. That form of writing was constructed to adapt itself to the Bible before everything was in scrolls. But we all, the, the codices were all in, on vellum, which is animal skins. We also have papyruses. P46 is within, it's the oldest complete collection of what we call the corpus paulinum the body of Paul's letters, and that was produced around the year 200. There are others, like the, the Rylands Papyrus, which is a fragment, it's just a fragment, of the Gospel of Mark that was produced within two generations of when the Gospel of Mark was written. So these are very ancient. Now, there are differences between them. Not significant differences for the most part. There are just a handful of significant differences. Most of the differences are a sleepy scribe, you know, and he writes the wrong letter, but it changes the nature of the word. So the task of the textual critic is then to take all of these and, and evaluate them and to get as close as we can be confident 
that we are arriving at the original inspired word of God. Now, all of these differences, they don't affect any of the doctrines of the church. As far as what the church believes, these differences don't affect them. But there's also, let me just give you a contrast. So we have 6, 000, over 6,500 ancient manuscripts of the Greek New Testament. That's a lot, right? Okay, the most well-attested to other ancient document is Plato's Republic, of which there are how many? A couple hundred copies of Plato's Republic in the original Greek. And when is the earliest of those produced? A thousand years after Plato wrote the Republic, around in the, in the 10th century, so in the 900s. So a thousand years after Plato wrote the Republic, we have the oldest copy of the Republic. What's the oldest copy of the Greek New Testament? Within a generation or two of when Mark was written. Do you see the difference? And what is this? This is a testimony to the providence of God that he will preserve his word. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, and, and I would love to teach a class on this because it's, it's one of my favorite subjects just as a hobby, and there's so much to be said about it. I mean, in, you know, we should all be familiar with Codex Sinaiticus. I mean, we should, we should know that. It's like a friend of ours. And uh, so... All of that to say, at the end of the day, you can make the case that, how do I want to put this? That just in terms of human endeavor, that you can prove that the New Testament, that we have the original New Testament through all these manuscripts. But at the end of the day, it doesn't matter because is the Holy Spirit moving you to faith? Can you be saved without ever reading a Bible? If you're on a desert island with another person who is not a believer, can you lead them to Christ without a Bible? Yeah. So, it's a good point, Mike. Thank you. Use your iPhone. Um, so, it's a both and. I mean... It's the same thing in terms of, of history, uh, you know, and this is another class that I've been dying to teach, is a class on Old Testament, co historical context of the Old Testament. You know, we read about all these kings, you know, there's six kings of Assyria mentioned in the Old Testament. Well, guess how many of them we have ample historical evidence of? All of them? You know, Ashurbanipal, who was the last great king of Assyria, he's listed in, I mean, he's mentioned in the Old Testament. You know how many uh, books we have from his library? About 20,000 from the library of Ashurbanipal in Nineveh. You might say that, that you know, he, when you go through the Old Testament, all these names, these historical figures, they are, we don't fear archaeology because they continue to verify what's in the Bible. And nor should we fear it 
Because Christ himself, the incarnation, is he just out there? No, God in his providence, Christ was born into the world in time-space history in the reign of who? Augustus. He was crucified in who? The reign of Tiberius. The Christian faith is an inherently historical faith. We don't fear these things because these are things that God has ordained. What did Christ say to Thomas? To touch and feel. In other words, to investigate. We as believers should be the masters of history. We should know history backwards, forwards, left, right, up and down, in and out. Because our faith is an inherently historical faith. Because God made the world and said it is good. And his son was born into this world, fully God, but fully man. So no other religion in the world is punctuated into history like that. We are a unique faith. And so that should be a call to each of us to know our, our history as a church, which is what we've been teaching, but know the history of the world because it's the history in which God's kingdom has been advancing. We should know Mesopotamian history backwards and forwards because that is the canvas that the Old Testament played out on. So I'll get off my soapbox. Do you have a follow-up on that subject? Okay. That's a whole different and murky question because there is, there's a lot of agenda driving that one. So, but I would say that by and large, even though people don't want to trumpet it, that the New Testament is, is more well attested than the Quran. The Quran is also has the benefit of being more recent. So there's 600 years between the closing of the New Testament and when the Quran was supposedly authored. Excuse me. So that's another conversation. You had a question? Okay, so a Coptic Christian uh, is, well, first off, what does the word Copt mean? So in Greek, if you see a word in English where a Y is functioning as a vowel, you know that sometimes Y, more often than not, in, om in, case, in almost all cases, that Y is from the Greek letter upsilon. And so when we get the word Egypt, that, that Y in Egypt is the Greek letter upsilon. So in, in Greek, Egypt would be aiguptios. And so that G-U-P-T in aiguptios, or gamma upsilon pi tau, is, that is the root of the word that we call copt. It just means Egyptian Christian, in effect. Does that make sense? Okay, so that's who they are. What do they believe? Uh... Well, if you look at that handy last page of my notes, uh, about a third of, two-thirds of the way down, you will see monophysitism. And that, that was a heretical movement that taught that Christ was not fully God 
and fully man, but that he was God and man in a way in the sense that those natures were mixed together into a one-time unique being, not in unique in the being fully both of them, fully God and fully man, but a distinct third nature that is different from anything else that has ever existed. So he's God and he's man, but he's somewhere in between. He's something else. So monophusis is Greek for just one nature or that third unique nature, not man, not God, but both in a unique way, different from what we believe in terms of God being fully God and fully man. Why does that matter? Well, there's a lot of reasons why it matters. So, you know, part of it is, if he is not, if he is a unique being, that is this admixture of human and divine natures, then is it really a fully human hanging on the cross paying for our sins? No, the entire salvific economy breaks down. That's just one difference. Why do I bring all this up? Because Copts are monophysites. So the, the Egypt is going to be overrun with the monophysite heresy. The Council of Chalcedon is going to try to, is going to grapple with that, but there is going to be a significant monophysite minority in Egypt, even after Chalcedon, which was in 451. And this issue is ultimately going to be resolved, not theologically, but with the Muslims just coming in and taking over Egypt and basically casting the Copts, the Monophysite Christians, outside the bounds of Christianity because they are in a world controlled by Muslims now. And so the issue just resolves itself. But they are still there to this day. And that they are a significant minority in Egypt, and it dates back to this time, to the 6th century, to the 5th century. No. I mean, they, they, they do not, they would affirm the Nicene Creed. They would not affirm the Chalcedonian Creed. They reject it outright. And those two creeds are the foundation of what the church believes. doesn't matter if you're Catholic, Orthodox, Protestant, not liberal Protestant, but, you know, any truly Bible-believing Christian from any of those three traditions are going to be Nicene Chalcedonian Christians. So, now, within the ranks of the Coptic Church, there, I'm sure there are authentic Christians that in some ways may be uh, saved by their ignorance. So, any other questions? Nothing? Yeah, Doug. I, I don't, but I can. I mean, I could bring it next Sunday. If, would you like one? Okay. Yeah, if anybody wants a collection of all the notes, I'll put them on a thumb drive or something for you if you want. But you're going to have to, maybe I'll just get a piece of paper and you can write your name down on a list because I'm not going to keep track. So if you want all the notes, come to me afterwards and I'll put your name down. So, any other questions? Nothing?
What? Many words make the heart sick? Depends on the words. Psalm says a lot of words. So. True. Yes. Probably not. So many of our founding fathers, not all of them, but many of them were, were definitely products of the Enlightenment, which uh, would deny the spiritual reality of the church. They might say they are Christians. They might even say that they are, as we say, deists, but they would not affirm the truths of Scripture. So Thomas Jefferson is another. He famously edited, you know, he had an edited version of the New Testament or the Gospel of Luke or whatever that, uh, he was basically an American Marcionist. So, but there are others like Patrick Henry who were absolutely devout Christians and we'll, we will see in eternity. So, any other questions? Okay, then I'm going to close in prayer. But thank you, guys. Yes. Before you before you close in prayer, just to let you guys know, next week um, we'll be back in here again, and Brandon will be going through uh, dealing with the case for the resurrection. So during the Sunday school hour next week, that's what we'll be we'll be focused on next week uh, before the preaching time. So just so you know. Cool. Uh, I would just like to thank everyone for giving Hoyt and I a chance to do this for seven months. So it's been a lot of fun, and I hope it's been a beneficial study. So, well, thank you guys. So, and I'm happy to take more, well, thank you guys. I'm happy to take more questions too afterwards so they're not recorded. So, okay, let's close. <clears throat> Lord, I thank you that you are the great shepherd of the sheep, that we are your sheep, and you have called us. Thank you for this time, for these people, for this opportunity. I pray that you will bless it and that we will be strengthened to herald your gospel in a dark, dark world. In your name we pray. Amen.